0: your copy of God's Word and open it to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning with verse 17. That's where we will begin this morning. We're going to go all the way through chapter 3. Don't be afraid. We're not going to be here all morning because I'm not going to read from chapter 3, but I will give you an outline from that text, and that will help you as you study on your own. George Barna conducted a study some years ago among churches that yielded some very interesting results. He found that only 2% of pastors have a vision for the churches that they pastor. Obviously, that means that only 2% of churches have a clear vision about where they're going. That means that 98 out of 100 churches lack a clear direction for their future. I believe one of the reasons many churches are wandering around in circles is because they lack a vision. Now, we've talked about what a mission is and what a vision is in weeks past. You've heard me say that our mission is clear. We find it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Matthew chapter 28 where Jesus said, Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's our mission. That doesn't change. But birthed out of that mission is a vision. The mission is what we do. The vision is how we do it. It's important that we understand what God wants us to do, but it's equally important that we understand how he wants us to do it. And as a church, from time to time, it's important to revisit our vision. Sometimes our vision may change. Our mission doesn't change, but our vision may be adjusted in order to help us accomplish more fully, more completely the mission that god has for us now there are some i understand in in every church who have no interest in vision i mean they're just along for the ride they're not excited about the things of god they are more interested in what's happening in the world they're on the peripheral they're looking in they're not participants They ease in and they ease out of the church services. They may be there, they may not be there. But they have no level of real commitment. It will not be those people that God can use to build his kingdom. Those people will not be able to advance the cause of Christ. What God is looking for are people who have a desire to serve him and have a longing to see something that God can do that only He alone can accomplish. And it's time for this church and every church that names the name of Christ to embrace that type of goal. But the good thing is that there are many people at Tabernacle who have a love for God. And they want to see a great work of God accomplished. And they understand that it's going to cost them something. It won't be easy, but it will be worth it. And for that reason, this message is being preached. What you need is to have a clear understanding of your mission. And you need to have a clear understanding of your vision so that those things can be embraced And under the direction and the strength of the Lord, you can move forward. The book book of Nehemiah provides an excellent example of how God's people can accomplish great things when given a vision and challenged to rise and build. Although Jerusalem's city walls had been in ruins for over a hundred years, no one had a vision to rebuild them until God broke the heart of Nehemiah and gave him a burden to do the work. After 40 days of fasting and prayer, King Artaxerxes granted Nehemiah permission to lead in the rebuilding project. Nehemiah traveled the three-month trip from Susa to Jerusalem. After surveying the walls and their deplorable condition for three days, he issued a challenge to the people to have a vision for the walls to be rebuilt. Embracing that vision, they said, let us arise and build. Let us arise and build. Folks, God has a vision for Tabernacle to reach this region and impact this world with the gospel message. That is why we're here, It's to do a work for God. If we're going to capture this vision, we must rise and build. Now, when I say build, I'm not talking about building a structure, a building. I'm talking about building a great work for God, accomplishing a great thing for him, under his leadership under his direction with his power for his glory and i want to use this passage to identify four things that i think are very important for us as we move forward in this church to rise up and build these are four very important things and they apply not just to this church but any church that strives to be all that god wants them to be so i encourage you to write these things down first of all conviction is needed to rise and build conviction is needed look with me now in chapter 2 verse 17 this is what nehemiah said then i said to them you see the bad situation we're in that jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire he was convicted by a report that he had received From Jerusalem. And it broke his heart and it burdened his heart to do something about it. And that's when he started seeking the Lord and God used him to cast the vision before the people. But it was brought about by a conviction. When he heard the news, the condition of Jerusalem and those broken down walls, he was greatly disturbed. I suggest that you and I should be greatly disturbed when we consider what's going on in our community and our world. Everywhere we look, we see that we're in a moral decline. It's all around us. It's in every institution. It's at at every economic level. In our city and around the world. And it's evidence that people are in rebellion against God. I couldn't help but uh, read some of the reviews about the Thanksgiving parade, the Macy's Thanksgiving parade. I did record it, haven't had a chance to to view the segment I recorded it for yet, and that's with Eric leading the Woodland Band. And I'm so proud of them. They did such a good job, I've heard And uh, what a great honor that was. But unfortunately, NBC opened the broadcast, at least what I've been told, with a perverted sexual act between two people of the same sex. Twenty years ago, that would not have been tolerated in this country. It's not only being embraced, it's being applauded. And if you disagree with it, you are condemned. And I would not be at all surprised if in the near future, if you don't agree with it and embrace it, not only will you be condemned, you will be prosecuted. That is just one example of how our culture is in a moral freefall. We see it everywhere at every level. But God has placed us here, this church and all Bible teaching churches, in this environment to make a difference. And it's time for God's people to awaken from their sleep and see that God has a vision for us. Now, some people, when it comes to vision, they've closed the door. Some have closed the door and they've locked it. Some have closed the door and they've locked the door and they've dead bolted the door. Some have closed the vision door, they've locked the door, they've bolted it, and they've thrown away the key. What God wants to do is kick the door down so that God's people can advance and do great works for Him. But it requires us understanding our situation, understanding the culture in which we live. And the report should stagger us all. A few Sunday nights ago, we had a number of you in the congregation as we had an interactive experience to stand and uh, tell us what you see in your work environment, in your school, in your neighborhood, what you see in your city, in your state, in your country, in your world. And we heard some good things, but we also heard many things that are indicative of of a people, of a society, of a nation that is in rebellion against God. That's where we are, and it should awaken us. It should convict us to action. So they were convicted by a report, but also they were convicted by a reproach. Verse 17 goes on to say, Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach so that we will no longer be a reproach. It was a reproach for those walls to be broken down. It had remained in that condition for a hundred years, ever since the fall of Jerusalem by the Babylonians as they went into the city, destroyed it, burned it to the ground, and led the people out into captivity in Babylon where they remained for 70 years. But even upon their return in three different phases, and after the rebuilding of the temple, although it was a shadow of what it had formerly been, the walls still were broken down, which meant that no one wanted to live in the city. It was unsafe. So they remained scattered out in the countryside. Having a walled city would mean that, that people could come in who lived in the vicinity. They could come in and and find safety and security should an army approach. Here are the people of God who claim that they serve the one true and living God, and they worship Him, and He is Almighty God, yet they're living in a city that has walls that are broken down and nobody has the vision to rebuild them. It was a disgrace. It was a reproach. And Nehemiah said, It's time to remove this disgrace, this reproach, and rebuild these walls. He was convicted when he looked at the condition of these walls in Jerusalem and realized that we're the people of God. Why are we allowing this to happen? And then notice there's also. This conviction that came by revelation. Verse 18, he says, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, Let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. God had revealed to Nehemiah the condition of those walls. And how that he was sending him to make a difference so that they could be rebuilt and restored. He was convicted by that revelation. You say, Well, I don't know about God's revelation. Folks, don't you have a Bible in your laps? This is God's revelation. Do we need a clearer word than what he's already told us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 and Matthew chapter? 28 verses 19 and following. I mean, it is as clear as it possibly can be. He's given us our marching orders, He's told us exactly what He wants us to do. The question is not whether or not there is a revelation from God, the question is will we obey it? God has clearly told us what we should be doing. He has laid upon our hearts what we should do, and we must have a conviction to rise up and build a great work for him. Have you ever noticed when you have a pain in your body, and as you get older, you get more pains? Isn't that true? You didn't realize you had so many body parts until you get older and you start feeling these pains, but what it does, it, it focuses your attention on that part of the body where that pain is located. Now, there's a cause for that pain, But what we do many times is rather than deal with a problem, we try to mask it. We cover it up by taking something to deaden our senses so we won't feel the pain. Now, that may be necessary for a short time, But if that's all you do and you don't discover what is causing the pain and try to remedy the problem, you're going to continue to have the problem and it is most likely going to get worse. The body of Christ should feel pain due to the spiritual condition of our world. When we ache in our hearts over the unsaved and over the unchurched, we will then develop the conviction necessary to do something about it. We must be careful not to allow the pleasures of this world to numb us of our spiritual sensitivity. Having a strong conviction about God's vision for our church will enable us to arise and build for his glory and his glory alone. So... Conviction is is very important to rising and building a great work of God. There's a second thing. Notice, commitment to rise and build is also important. We see this in verse 18. Let me read verse 18 for you again. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Notice you'll see here, first of all, in verse 18, a verbal commitment, a verbal commitment. It was God who had committed himself to see that the work would be done. He mentions the hand of my God had been favorable to me. God had already spoken to his heart during that time of prayer and fasting leading him to make a difference in this process by rebuilding the walls. So God had made a commitment. The king also, he mentions here in verse 18, his words. If you recall in prior sermons how the king had provided what he would need by way of materials to rebuild the walls, and also he provided letters where he could use those letters to, to navigate the land from Susa moving to Jerusalem so he would not be detained. So he had given his word. And then the people speak up and they say, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Here is a verbal commitment. Folks, we need to be willing to say before God, Lord, we will do whatever you call us to do. We will go wherever you send us. No matter how long it takes, no matter the cost involved, we will do it and by the way that commitment should have already been made when we yielded our lives to Christ and we received his salvation we were essentially saying Lord I will go where you want me to go I will stay as long as you want me to stay I will do whatever it is you are calling me to do we are supposed to surrender our lives to the Lord daily we're to die to ourselves daily that's a verbal commitment there's also a physical commitment The people said, let us rise and build. And they put their hands to the good work. That is, they had a stake in what was going on. They were participants, not spectators. Everybody had to join in and help. This rebuilding process was much larger than any one man or group could accomplish. Everybody was important to get the job done. They had to work together to make it happen. God is calling this congregation to work together to make great things happen, to accomplish great things for God. And it requires a commitment from everyone to make that occur. And then we see a financial commitment, verse 18. Now, we know that they were physically committed, but as you read through all the the book of Nehemiah, you will see that they also committed themselves financially in a number of different ways to see that this work was accomplished. It's important that we realize that there will be a cost to doing the work of God. We must be willing to pay whatever price is necessary to see the work completed. Now, commitment is rarely seen in our culture of selfishness. For example, many couples who stand before God in a congregation of people commit their lives to each other, and they say, Until death do we part. But I declare to you, for many of those couples, the ink is not dried on their marriage certificate until they start thinking about other options. And the commitment they made and the covenant that they've agreed to seems to go by the wayside. True commitment is more than words. It involves work. Commitment to the vision of God for this church or any church is no different we need to make a commitment not just with our words but with our deeds we need to put our faith into action and see great things happen for the lord now there is a fourth thing i want to or, i or should say there's a third thing i want to mention to you regarding rising up and building a great work for god and that is cooperation we need to cooperate if we're going to rise up and build we have to cooperate And we see that lived out in chapter 3, verses 1 through 32. Now, I'm going to give you an outline here. I'm not going to read these verses. We simply don't have the time to do that this morning. But I do want to give you this outline and let you write it down, and then in your own private time you can read through and see this outline taking shape. And what you'll find is that these people cooperated. They worked together despite their preferences. Now think about how hazardous it could have been to this vision had the people pursued their own preferences. What if they couldn't have, could not have agreed on the size of the wall? Maybe it should be thicker, some could have said. Some could have said, well, I don't like that wall because that plan is, is going to mean the wall is going to be too high. Others may have said, no, it's going to be too low. We need it to be higher. Some may have said, well, I don't like the, the uh, working environment. Some could have even reasoned that the working effort that we're putting into this is not worth what we're doing. There is costing us too much. And some could have said, well, we need some outside support or we ne- a hundred different options could have come up in, by way of preferences. These people had to lay aside their preferences in order that they work together. You know what I have discovered through the years that doing the work of God is not about me. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. It's not about you either. Now, that's contrary to where many Christians find themselves in this modern age in America where we're so self-centered. People approach the work of the church today as you and I would approach a restaurant. Now, you have a favorite restaurant. There are places where you go. If you want a steak, you'll go to a particular restaurant, and you'll order that steak. And most of the time, you order the same thing, don't you? But if you want a hamburger, you may go to a completely different restaurant. Or there may be some mashed potatoes you like at a particular restaurant. You think, man, I love that mashed potatoes and gravy. Wow, that's some good stuff. Fried chicken. And so you'll go to a different restaurant. And you go all over town trying to satisfy your preference. Well, that's fine when it comes to the restaurants. But folks, the church is not a restaurant. And what I find in our day is that there are people who say, Well, I'm going to come over here on Sunday morning. I really like the music here on Sunday morning, not even knowing what the church believes, not knowing how they support mission work or if they support it. But they feel good when they come into the room, so it must be God. They like the atmosphere. But we're not going to go there on Wednesday night because they don't have anything for the kids. We're going to come to this church on Wednesday night because our preference is here. Folks, that's a good picture of the church today. It's a revolving door. I want to say, where is the cooperation? Where is the level of commitment where people are saying, we're going to do a great work of God, we're going to work together, we're not going to have our preferences as as a... As a primary emphasis, we all have our preferences, but that's going to be laid aside because the work of God is far more important. Now in this chapter, as I mentioned, here's the outline. You see cooperation to rebuild the north wall in verses 1 through 5. Then you see cooperation to rebuild the west wall in verses 6 through 12. And then there's cooperation to rebuild the south wall in verses 13 and 14. There's cooperation to rebuild the southeast wall in verses 15 through 27. Cooperation to rebuild the northeast wall in verses 28 through 32. This chapter is a picture of togetherness. Of working side by side hand to hand supporting the work and in the process the people grow stronger and thankful that God would use them to do a work that they could not do alone it's amazing when we work together and see a great work of God happen how it builds the body up and it gives us more confidence in the Lord Rather than ourselves, we become more thankful. We become more appreciative for what God has done. We begin to expect God to do even greater things in the future. And love begins to flourish within the congregation. But it requires cooperation. Have you ever been in a boat and you, you've been paddling along? Have you noticed when you take the oar and you start paddling on one side of the boat, what happens? The boat begins to turn. You'll just paddle. If you just keep paddling on that one side, you're going to go around in circles. Isn't that a picture of where many of us are as Christians today? We're wearing ourselves out paddling our little boat around. But we're going in circles. But you get somebody else to partner with you in the boat and let them paddle on that side and you paddle on this side and you go forward. Forward. You make progress. As we move this gospel ship forward, everybody needs to have an oar in hand and paddling together so we can make progress together. That's cooperation. It's essential if we're going to rise up and build. And then notice finally, Contribution to rise up and build is necessary. Again, you see this in this chapter 3, verses 1 through 32, there's a contribution of time. Time is the most important commodity you have because it is your life. How you invest your time. Now, uh, if you will go back and look at how much time you invest in things, it will shock you. I don't know about you, but I have an iPhone and, and a recent update to my iPhone, you know, periodically they'll send an update. Now it will tell me how much screen time I've spent on my phone. It's amazing the amount of time we spend on our phones. Now, I do a lot of research on my phone. I, I really do. I probably do more work on a computer on my phone than I do in my office. I mean, it's very handy. I'm used to it. I can pull things up quickly. But that's not the only thing I look at. But it was amazing to me to see how much time I spend on my phone. How much time do you spend on your phone? How much time do you and I spend watching television or watching ball games? We love these things. Nothing wrong with doing things we enjoy unless they they dominate our lives and consume our time and we don't have any time to serve God because we're so busy folks we cannot do a great work for God giving him our leftovers i can look across the congregation and tell that many of you enjoyed your thanksgiving meal But the third or fourth time you've eaten turkey and dressing, those leftovers get old. You're ready to move on to something else. Why don't we give God our leftovers? What do you think God would do if we gave him our best? Not just in time, but also there needs to be a contribution of our treasure. Wait a minute, preacher, you're beginning to meddle now. I was thinking about this. Think about all the treasure you have. Oh, wait a minute, preacher. I don't have that much money. Did you know if we could somehow take all the money that we've spent buying things we don't use that are in our garage or basement or spare room or closet, things we have never used. We could take billions of dollars and use it to reach this world for Jesus. Most of us buy things we don't need and we never use and we wind up throwing them away or putting them in a yard sale, getting a fraction of what we put in, and then we say, God, we don't have any money. And we look like paupers begging God to do something when he's already given us the resources necessary to accomplish the work he's given to us. If we're going to do a great work for God, we must give up our treasure. The Bible tells us that we are to store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust and thief cannot take it. Many of us have already spent our treasures and we've not given anything to the Lord. On average, the average believer gives less than three pennies out of a dollar to do the work of God. That is an indictment on us. It points out that we simply are not interested in doing enough for God to make a difference. We're not willing to give sacrificially because we're so selfish. It's quiet in here. Isn't it true? I mean, isn't that the truth? Let's be honest. The richest nation on earth Anybody who is physically able can get a job in this economy. The problem is we don't want to give up anything. Most of us, including your pastor, struggle with selfishness, greed, lavish living in a world that's dying without Jesus. And then there's a contribution of talent. You see verses 1 through 32, if you read that chapter, people using their gifts for the glory of God. You say, well, that excludes me, Pastor, because I'm just not gifted. Well, what you're saying is that God has not invested anything in you that's usable. And that's contrary to what God's Word says. So if you don't mind, I would rather take God's word for it than yours. The reality is that God has placed in you gifts and talents, abilities that are unique to who you are. And he's placed them there for the purpose of using them for his glory. Folks, it's not about you showing off some gift or talent. It's about you investing that for the glory of God. I look across this congregation I think about all the gifted people I see you all have special abilities and talents that are amazing and I profit from these things don't keep them to yourself use them and there are many ways you can use your gifts and talents that have absolutely nothing to do with God's glory If you're not careful, you can squander what God has invested in you for something that does not last, has no eternal value whatsoever. Sadly, many of us are not using our time, our treasure, and our talents wisely. And as a result, we are suffering. You've heard me tell the story about me going to the fair when I was a teenager, and I will tell it again here because I think it's so appropriate to what I'm trying to say to you. But when I was a teenager, I guess about 17, I took this uh, young lady to the fair. That was a big thing to do back in those days in a community where there was not a whole lot happening. And uh, my goal was to impress her. So... uh, We arrived at the fair I was working at a supermarket I'd I'd gotten paid you know so I felt really good and I thought I'm gonna win her a stuffed animal this will really impress her I saw a few other people carrying around these big teddy bears and things I thought this would be I'll really leave a mark on her when I when I do this ten minutes later and sixty dollars short I think it was a little plastic banana that I had won (laughs) I'd lost everything I had and did not even have enough money to buy a candied apple. So we had to leave the fair. And by the way, the word fair is not a good term (laughs) for my experience. So I felt very defeated, very embarrassed. I I took her home and I went home myself and um, I walked in and my dad was sitting in his chair. And I didn't have to tell him this, but I felt like I needed to. I needed to confess. You know, confession is good for the soul. So I said, Dad, I really made a bad bad mistake tonight, a bad decision. And I explained to him I went to the fair and I lost about $60. He looked at me and he, this is all he said. He said, uh, Son, I thought you knew better than that. Mm. <laughs> that hurt. That hurt worse than the $60 because I knew that I had disappointed him. I knew that he had greater confidence in me than I demonstrated. I don't think I've been back to the fair since I was 17. (laughs) And I can assure you I've not lost any money. But I learned a valuable lesson that night. I wonder when the Lord looks at us and we get honest with him and confess I wonder if God says to us, you knew better than that. Not in a condemning way, not to make us feel guilty, but to teach us there's a better way. You can make better decisions than that. I have confidence in you. You don't have to continue to do it that way. You can change. I'll help you. And that's where God is taking us today. He's taking us to a different place. The Lord has a purpose and plan for Tabernacle. And it's larger than a pastor. It's larger than the staff. It's far more important. It has to do with God. And the vision that God has for this church supersedes any one of us. As a matter of fact, as we move forward into the future, it could be that there will be many of us who will be called home in the process. But the vision doesn't change. God's plan doesn't change. It's not altered. He keeps moving forward, and he wants to take us with him. But we have to follow him by faith. God is calling this church to rise and build, and I think in the coming weeks, months, and years, we're going to see that happen. I don't know another church that has any more potential than Tabernacle Baptist. But it is ours to embrace when it comes to vision. But we have to be willing to be faithful to the Lord to see it happen.